I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? All right. Thanks for joining us today. We got a special treat for you. He was named one of Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential People in Space. He is an author, having written eight books. He is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, the founder of the Institute of Theory and Computation within the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Please welcome Professor Avi Loeb. Avi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You've got quite the resume, my man. I could go on for probably a day and not even read them all. Well, these labels are not very significant for me. I, I'm fundamentally the farm boy that I was at a young age. I grew up on a farm and collected eggs every afternoon and connected very much with nature. And I was mostly curious about philosophical questions. And that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. So you were born in Israel, correct? Yes, I was. <laughs> so how does a farm boy in Israel come to America and become an astrophysicist? Well, one thing led to another. So I was mostly interested in philosophy and then um, you have to, it's obligatory to serve in the military at age 18. Uh, I had two options, either to run in the fields with a gun or, um, or to do some intellectual work, which was closer to philosophy. And um, there was an option of uh, pursuing physics, a, a degree in physics and doing research in physics that is useful for the defense of the country within a special elite program. And I was admitted to that because I was good in physics as well. So that sounded to me like closer to philosophy. And then within that program, I initiated a project that was funded by Star Wars, the initiative that Ronald Reagan, uh, President Reagan, uh, established back in the mid-1980s. And uh, it was the first uh, internationally funded uh, project. And uh, I visited Washington, D.C. quite often as a result of that. And there was a whole department built around this project that uh, I was the sort of uh, leader of the theoretical effort of that uh, effort of that uh, project. And uh, in one of my visits to Washington, D.C., uh, I, I also went to visit Princeton. And there I was introduced to an astrophysicist named John Bacall. It was Freeman Dyson who introduced me to him. And uh, I didn't know anything about astrophysics. They invited me again for a month and then uh, offered me a five-year fellowship after I finished my military service in Israel. And I said, okay, this is an offer I cannot refuse, just like in The Godfather. And I took that and uh, then I had to learn the vocabulary of astrophysics. And it looked always to me like a compromise because I, I really wanted to pursue philosophy. But then uh, I was also offered the faculty position at Harvard. And I said, okay, well, that's another offer that I cannot refuse. Yeah. And they initially selected someone else, but that someone else declined the offer because the chance of getting tenured at Harvard were very small at the time. And um, I accepted it because I could always go back to the farm. I didn't have any concerns about the job uh, in my future. Uh, and um, then three years later, I was tenured, at which point I said, well, it's too late now to go back to the farm or philosophy. And then I realized that even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love because there are philosophical philosophical questions that we can address within the realm of sciences in astrophysics. And one of them is, are we the smartest kid on the block? 
Are we? <laughs> well, I would say probably not. You know, my daughters used to think so when they were young and they spend their time at home. And then when I took them to the kindergarten and they met other kids, that was a shock to them. And they obviously would have, if I asked them on the first day in the kindergarten, they would tell me that they prefer to stay at home and maintain their illusion uh, that they are the smartest in the world. And that's pretty much the way my colleagues in academia act. They don't want to hear about it. They say, give us extraordinary evidence before we even discuss this subject. And at the same time, they don't provide funds to get that extraordinary evidence. So to me, it sounds just like closing the curtains on our windows and saying, we don't have neighbors. We are the smartest without looking through the windows. And uh, obviously, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we can be ignorant forever in principle. My point is, it will not get rid of our neighbors, the fact that we don't see them through our windows. That's one thing that uh, we have to realize, given the fact that, you know, back in the days of Galileo Galilei, he argued it looks like the earth is moving around the sun. And the philosophers at the time said, no, we know that we are at the center of the world. Again, this ego-driven view that we are really important. And uh, uh, he, of course, disagreed. They put him in house arrest. And uh, that didn't change the fact. They didn't look through his telescope. But it didn't change the fact that the Earth moves around the sun. And that's why a new project that we just announced uh, is called the Galileo Project, because I feel that we, are, we should not make the same mistake. That's true. And was he hung? Well, he was under house arrest. And, you know, I was also under house arrest over the past uh, year and a half or so uh, since the pandemic started. And, uh, <laughs> but it's not because of my colleagues. I mean, today he would have been canceled on social media. That's for sure. Right. He would have. Yes. That's a great point, actually. Okay. Why are you so controversial? Is it because you're so open to there being life elsewhere? Well, I'm just uh, uh, speaking what sounds to me like common sense. Right. And the reason that I am controversial is because my colleagues do not use common sense. Oh, I love it. Okay. So you get a lot of pushback, it sounds like, from your colleagues. Yeah. I mean, it's really surprising because I worked on many frontiers in the past, you know, in cosmology, studying the dark matter, studying black holes. And in all of these frontiers, I suggested new ideas. And at the time, you know, that people at first did not appreciate them. Then some of them became mainstream. But I've never encountered, you know, so I applied exactly the same uh, approach in this context of the search for intelligent life elsewhere. And I did not anticipate that, you know, people would react to it so emotionally and uh, would attack me personally, uh, because to me, it sounded like part of our scientific endeavor to contemplate possibilities, right? We know that we exist. And then we know that uh, about half of the sun-like stars have a planet roughly the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So we know that there are tens of billions of other Earth-Sun systems in the Milky Way galaxy and is there something less commonsensical than to say we exist here, therefore things like us could have existed around other, other stars? You know, like what's so uh, controversial about that? Let's just check. And uh, my point is we should check through our telescopes because it's possible that another technological civilization that predated us, let's say by a billion years, already sent out equipment into space. And this equipment could have had, for example, artificial intelligence systems that can replicate themselves. Like they have 3D printers, they go to planets and use the raw material to make more of the same. And 
in over a billion years, you can pretty much populate all habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy with such probes. And um, we don't know if this never happened. We don't know if we don't have probes around us. And rather than assume that we are alone and there is nobody intelligent out there because that flatters our ego, we should check. That's all I'm saying. And it doesn't sound to me controversial at all. Uh, what's the problem with looking through our telescopes? And, you know, um, for a while, I was a little bit uh, upset because my colleagues would say, no, there is no extraordinary evidence, therefore we shouldn't check. And, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you are not funding the search, you will never find anything. But then, you know, over the past couple of weeks, uh, a few wealthy people approached me, people that I've never met, and said, here is some money that you can use for your research. No strings attached. And altogether, within two weeks, I got $1.755 million. And then I said, okay, well, I have enough money to establish a research program around this theme, studying the nature of objects that uh, were seen near Earth, whose nature is not clear, that could potentially be of extraterrestrial technological origin. Let's just figure it out by taking a close-up photographs of these. And, uh, you know, there is nothing better than a high-resolution image. Uh, it's not a philosophical question. We just need uh, a megapixel image of an object to figure out whether it's artificial or natural in origin. So, a muamua, is that kind of what you're talking about? Is it that one? Yeah, so in fact, no, there are two um, populations of objects. One of them is represented by Oumuamua, this object that was discovered in 2017 from outside the solar system. It was the first one, and it looked very weird. It didn't look like the typical rock that we find within the solar system. So the question is, what was it? Was it artificial or natural? And um, I wrote a whole book about this object. It's called Extraterrestrial, became bestseller, translated into 25 languages. And I had about a thousand interviews over the past six months about this book. And as a result of that, that's the reason that all these wealthy individuals were inspired to approach me. Uh, but there should be many more objects like Oumuamua that we could find in the future and take a close-up photograph of if we know about them, if we get an alert in advance. But there is a second class of objects, which are the unidentified aerial phenomena that were uh, talked about in the report that was delivered to Congress uh, on June 25th, just a month ago. And uh, the government basically admits that there are objects flying in our sky, some of which are real, uh, whose nature is unknown. That's uh, an admission in failure because, you know, the, the government is being paid, you know, the intelligence agencies are being paid to figure out what objects are flying in our sky, right? Because yeah. they might be used by adversaries, by uh, other nations, and we need to, to know. And for them to report back to Congress that there's some objects they don't know the nature of is unusual. And to me, that's intriguing enough, given that very distinguished people admitted that they saw the classified data and it looks quite real. You know, people like former CIA directors, uh, Woolsey and Brennan and former President Barack Obama and, and others. To me, it sounds like this needs to move away from the talking points of politicians and military personnel to the realm of science. And that's what the Galileo Project is all about, looking at these two uh, populations of objects, interstellar objects and um, unidentified aerial phenomena, and using telescopes to figure out their nature. And obviously, if we have a high-resolution image, you know, we can tell the difference between a label saying made in country X here on Earth and made on planet 
why far away? So is that the main mission of this new Galileo project that you started? You just announced it within the last day or two of this recording, right? right. Yeah, and that was amazing because I got thousands of emails since it was announced on exactly a month after the Pentagon report to Congress on July 26th when we announced it just a couple of days ago. And since then, I got thousands of emails from support people that are really excited about the project that would like to get engaged, people that may be interested in, in uh, funding it. And, uh, you know, I, I I rest my case because what I was saying all along is, first of all, the public is interested in this subject and the scientific community needs to attend to the public's interest. It makes no sense for the scientists to say, you know, we don't want to discuss this subject. We want to figure out how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin just because that's more intellectually stimulating to us. Right. Um, I think uh, it's important for science to reflect the public's interest, you know, and the evidence for that is, of course, developing a vaccine to COVID-19 is, is, is a good example where there is a social need for an answer from science and, and, and it was provided. The second point is that if uh, we engage in this subject scientifically, there would be new funds arriving to science. That's my point. And the proof is I got new funds. <laughs> I didn't fundraise, you know. And then I also made the point that uh, young people will be attracted to science if it's exciting. And the proof is I got thousands of emails after the public announcement. So I just say, you know, I, I have proof that what I was talking about is, is, is correct based on the response. That's true. How far out do you think your project is from getting those high resolution pictures? Oh, um, so we currently have $1.755 million and that would allow us to deploy maybe 10 to several tens of uh, telescope systems in order to um, accomplish the task of surveying enough of the sky and uh, getting uh, meaningful results. I think we need 10 times more funding, uh, more than $10 million. And, you know, that could come through uh, crowdfunding or through some wealthy individuals. It's not a, a huge amount in, in terms of projects in general, but it's something that we need to get. And uh, at the moment, we have enough to get started and uh, start uh, building those telescope systems. And all we will need to do in the future, once we get enough funding, is to build more of the same and deploy them in many locations. And then the data that comes through the telescopes goes into cameras that uh, feed it into computer systems. We can't store all the data. Taking a video of the sky is a huge amount of data, and uh, we will have to filter it out and look for objects of interest. And the difference from scientific, from previous work that was done in astronomy uh, is that telescopes looking at the sky were ignoring things close to Earth. They were focusing on distant objects uh, most of the time. And um, here we are focusing on things very close to Earth and they move much faster across the sky and we have to design software that will study them. And it's a very different focus. And when you look at the sky in a different way, you are likely to discover new things. So even if it turns out, you know, that UAP are just an exotic atmosphere atmospheric phenomena, nothing to do with extraterrestrial civilizations. I think that we will figure out something new out of that uh, about the atmosphere. And even if Oumuamua turns out to be a chunk of frozen hydrogen, something that we've never seen before, again, we will learn something new because we've never seen it in the solar system. And there must be nurseries that make such objects 
very different from the solar system. So no matter what, even if we find natural explanations, we will discover something new. So it's a win-win proposition. That's true. What does your gut tell you Amuamua is? Because it did something weird, right? When it got close to Earth, it slowed down and then it sped back up or something like that, I heard you say? Yeah, well, it had the, it exhibited the several anomalies. First of all, there was no cometary tail around it. So it was definitely not a comet. There was no gas or dust, dust around it. Uh, but then as it was tumbling every eight hours, uh, the amount of light that it reflected from the sun changed by a factor of 10. And that meant a very extreme shape, a most likely flat pancake shape. And then it exhibited an excess push away from the sun, uh, most likely as a result of reflecting sunlight because there was no uh, cometary, no evaporation. Uh, and so there was no rocket effect acting on it. And so um, to get the sunlight to push it, you needed the object to be very thin. Uh, and that's when I suggested that it might be artificial in origin. And we found an artificial object that we launched in 1966. It was found by the same telescope in September 2020. Uh, it also exhibited an excess push by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary tail. It turns out to be a rocket booster from a launch to the moon in 1966. And it was given the name 2020 SO. And um, it just shows that we can tell an artificial object from a natural object. It didn't behave like a rock. And uh, of course, we didn't get enough data on Oumuamua, but my point is, uh, when we see a, a future object that looks as weird as Oumuamua was, we should take a close-up photograph of it. Do we know where it is right now? Uh, we have a rough estimate, but we can't see it because it's a million times fainter than it was close to Earth. So um, we we want to look for other objects of the same class. Uh, it, it, it's hopeless to try and chase it. Right, yeah, that's a good point. So what does your gut tell you it is? I think it's uh, possible that it's a technological relic of some sort, and I'm not sure exactly for what purpose. I don't think it's likely that it was a light sail that was meant to accelerate as a result of reflecting light, uh, but it could have been, for example, a receiver, um, you know, a, a football field uh, size dish or something very thin meant to collect information. But uh, we have no clue. And I think it was weird enough to provide us with a wake-up call that we should monitor our backyard for any objects we see from the street that look unusual. And every now and then, you know, in addition to the rocks that we often find that are natural in origin, we might find a plastic bottle, just like walking on the beach. Wow. Boy, that's interesting. The possibilities are just incredible. There was another one you discovered, the first interstellar object, correct? Right. There was one, actually a meteor that we found with my student. So it was discovered in 2015. Uh, it's an object that burned up in our atmosphere, but based on its uh, properties, we could tell that it came from outside the solar system. And that was before Oumuamua. Then uh, after Oumuamua, there was another interstellar object, but it did look like a regular comet, nothing unusual. So um, people asked me, doesn't that convince you that Oumuamua was natural? And I said, well, if you walk along the beach and you see a plastic bottle and then you see a rock, it doesn't make the plastic bottle a rock. It was very different. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so let's go to the ones in our atmosphere, the UAPs. What do you think those are? Do you think our government know knows more than they're telling us? 
Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think uh, we are seeing just the tip of the iceberg. And the reason is simple, because most of the data collected by the government is collected with sensors that are classified, because we don't want our adversaries to know uh, exactly what we are using to monitor our sky. And as a result, the data that, that these sensors collect is classified. So when I see people that looked at the classified portion of this iceberg, um, not just at the tip, as we did, and they say this is a serious matter, I believe them. And, uh, you know, that includes CIA directors and uh, uh, former presidents. So uh, to me, it sounds intriguing enough. And I, the way I view it is sort of like a kid. You know, the, the nice thing about science is it allows you to maintain your childhood curiosity. So um, when you tell a child this is the truth, uh, the child doesn't believe you. The child wants to figure it out for, for himself or herself. Uh, and very often, you know, the child gets bruised and uh, puts some skin in the game. and But I think science operates just the same way. I want to figure out what these unusual objects are and by collecting new data. I don't want to deal with either classified data or data that was collected by instruments on in the cockpit of a fighter jet that was jittery. I mean, I don't really want to figure out what really happened back then. Science is about reproducibility of results. And in science, what you do is you arrange your instruments in a fully controlled manner so that you know exactly how you are measuring things. Uh, you are not relying on eyewitness testimonies because humans are known to have hallucinations, to have wishful thinking, all kinds of psychological uh, effects. So you are getting quantitative measurements from instruments that you are fully in control of. And that's what we aim to do in the Galileo project, rather than uh, talk to people who witnessed unusual things. But uh, the reason we are doing it is because it's intriguing enough. It got to the point where science should get engaged so does your gut say that they are look, go back to your gut again sorry sorry to keep putting you in that situation does your gut tell you that it is something from another planet uh on that i'm not sure but my gut says we will learn something new no matter what and i should you know the the head of nasa bill nelson also who was a senator also commented and and he did see classified information uh, in his previous position um he did say that scientists should try and figure out the nature of these objects. So as soon as he said that on CNN, around the time when the Pentagon report was released, uh, I contacted people immediately under him. And I said, here I am to serve and help you make your boss happy. But they never got back to me. So then I said, okay, I'll do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> you want it done right, you got to do it yourself, right? Yeah, unfortunately, I got the funding from the private sector. So we will basically use open data that will be available to anyone that wants to analyze it. And uh, we will analyze it ourselves in a transparent way so anyone can follow how we came to our conclusions. And that's the way science is done. And if other people want to analyze it differently, they're mo most welcome to use the data. That actually worked out better that you got private funding then. Because if you got funding from them, it would be secret, right? Well, it could have been secret. Yeah, they might have asked me to keep my lips sealed. And I don't want to do that. I want to analyze it in the scientific way. The, the thing is, if you have a closed community of a small number of people that are able to see the data and you are not allowed to speak about it more broadly then um, this small group of people may make a mistake and nobody would know. And the way science operates is by many people looking at the same data and ch checking each other. And also it's more convincing to the public instead of us coming out with a statement uh, that it could be moderated by
by politicians. In the way science operates is you write a scientific paper and it gets uh, reviewed and everyone knows what went into it. Everything is open and transparent. And I think that's the right way for the public to appreciate whether the mystery is being solved or not. And let's see what we find. Yeah, I agree. Have you ever stumbled upon anything and then someone from the government has tried to tell you to zip it? No. Uh, but I should say this this uh, particular project is like a fishing expedition. You know, you throw the hook and you don't know what you will find, what kind of fish. We shall see. Um, it could be exciting. It might, you know, just put limits on what is out there. At any event, it will be in the scientific way. And that was never done. Despite the 70 years history, there was never a group of astronomers and scientists coming together, being funded to do a proper uh, scientific analysis of what we see in our sky close to us. It's so exciting to think about the possibilities of all this. Okay, so most of your work is dealing with all the space stuff. Where do you think the most likely place to find life would be, in your opinion? Well, if you're talking about biological life... Uh, right, something uh, like a higher being, yeah. Oh, intelligent life, you mean? Something that's more advanced. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Yes, thank well, you. Uh, that I would think around another star somewhere, and it may have been in our past. It doesn't need to be exactly now, you know, because most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And uh, the point is there could have been a civilization out there that predated us. It may not be around anymore, but it doesn't matter because if it's sent out uh, AI systems, they can be autonomous. You know, an AI system is just like having a kid. You can teach it through machine learning. You can provide it with the blueprint of what you want it to do, just like you tell your kids you should behave this way or another way. And then you send it to the world, just like you send your kids and they become independent of you. And then they operate on their own. And that's really a necessity because the distance between stars is so huge. You know, the nearest star is four light years away. The uh, stars at the edge of the Milky Way galaxy are tens of thousands of light years away. There is no way for a sensor or a probe to wait for guidance from the sender. It just takes too much time. So these probes need to be autonomous. Uh, they need to be smart and operate on their own. And uh, that's the way I think about it. And the sender may not be around anymore, but it's irrelevant. You know, humans or biological creatures could not really spend a long time in space because uh, there are cosmic rays that can damage our body. Um, so what you see on Star Trek or other science fiction movies, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, you would never embark on a trip to another star because it takes just too long. And um, uh, it's much better to send equipment. And that, I think, is the first thing we would find uh, from an intelligent civilization elsewhere. We've been searching for radio signals for a long time, maybe 70 years or so. Uh, and they haven't found any, but that's just like trying to have a phone conversation. You know, you need the counterpart to be alive. Uh, if you're looking for relics, you, you're basically doing archaeology. Uh, so you can find relics of cultures that are not around anymore. And that's assuming that they use the same frequencies that we know, right? No, no, no. So, for example, UAP could be objects that simply reflect sunlight, and that's why we see them, okay? So they don't need to be transmitting anything. But if they behave in ways that we cannot reproduce with our technology, even in terms of motion, not transmission of anything, um, just the way they move it may uh, supersede any technology technologies we possess, humans possess, not just the U.S. So that by itself would be 
uh, tantalizing. You know, you don't need to receive any transmission. Uh, then there would be the question of what is their intent? And we might need our AI systems to figure out their AI systems. It's sort of like relying on your kids to explain to you what you find on the internet because they are much more computer savvy. Um, so um, we might, uh, it might be a, a competition between two AI systems. Wow, that's interesting. Do you dabble at all in uh, other dimension type things? I've heard a lot lately about maybe the UAPs are interdimensional. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, um, as a physicist, I can tell you that the laws of physics that we know, these people that talk about uh, these possibilities are not really uh, practicing scientists. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, what we learned from physics is that the, the, the standard model of physics pretty much applies to all the experiments that we have. There are some, some anomalies, you know, for example, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. We call it dark matter. But that might be just a particle we haven't found yet. But so far, we haven't seen a major deviation from the laws of physics as we know them. And um, as a result, you know, in the Galileo project, we will approach what we see using the laws of physics in terms of interpreting it. Um, of course, we might find something that behaves in a strange way that doesn't obey the laws of physics, but we will not go in that direction until we have no choice. And people just floating the idea based on very partial evidence is just doesn't make sense because you know you can have a ghost in your optical system that moves around and it's not a real object and you would think that it moves around in a very strange way and you would say oh some extra dimension that is not sufficiently good evidence for that because you know nowadays physicists are looking for deviations from the standard model, even very minute ones, like the magnetic moment of the muon, you know, that has no major significance whatsoever. It's just a slight deviation from a theoretical calculation that even it uh, itself is not uh, very certain. And that gets the headlines and a Nobel Prize could be awarded for that. So I'm just saying, if in addition to something coming from another civilization, we find a, a breakdown of the way we understand reality, uh, physics, that would be even more major. But that's like going another step, and we will not go that extra step until we exhausted all other possibilities. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Kind of along the same lines, I know you did a lot of work with black holes, like studying them. Can you explain, I know we only got a few minutes, but can you explain what a black hole is and what you think might be in a black hole. Right. A black hole is an extreme structure of space and time. It's sort of like the ultimate prison. If you get into it, you can never check out. And then uh, you fall to the center of the black hole. And the question is, what is there? Eventually, your body would be uh, ripped apart, that close to the so-called singularity. And um, Einstein's theory of gravity breaks down uh, at that singularity because the curvature of space and time uh, becomes infinite, and we just don't have a complete theory of nature that combines quantum mechanics and gravity. So we don't know what lies at the center of a black hole. Where is the matter drained? Uh, is there an object there? Or maybe it goes somewhere else, the matter? We just don't know. And uh, there are some people that work on trying to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, and I suggested to, to them uh, to check their theories by going inside a black hole, but uh, they argue that they have an ulterior motive for sending them into a black hole. What do you think would happen if you tried sending, like, a say, a camera that beamed back pictures to us, you know, like one oh, of your probes? 
So, so even light cannot escape from the inside of a black hole. So the only way for you to find out what's happening inside the black hole is to go there and see it for yourself. But you would never be able to report to the rest of us what you see. <laughs> Does it suck everything? Everything yes. in its orbit just gets sucked into it and then we don't have no clue. No, because it's space and time that they suck everything towards the singularity. There is no way to escape. Even light cannot escape that fate. That is so wild to think about. Yeah, you know, I, I, I talked about black holes at the, when my daughter was uh, in the kindergarten. And then at some point, one of the kids said, so what would happen to my body when I get into a black hole? And I started explaining it. And then the teacher stopped me in the middle and said, stop here because the kids will have nightmares. <laughs> <to continue." laughs> That's hilarious. I, can, I, I was picturing you <laughs> there telling them without a care in the world and the horror on these kindergartners. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> my daughter was uh, really laughing very hard. At that <laughs> what do your kids think about it all? Uh, they're pretty much indifferent because they heard it throughout their life. No. Oh. One more thing I want to ask you. Did you have an experience? Did you see a UFO at one point in your no. life that got you interested? No. No, no. I'm just curious about it um, because uh, of all these reports. You know, I want to figure out what it is. I'm, as I said before, I'm just like a kid. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. One more. I know I said one more. This is the last one, I promise. Will the Galileo Project find life? Uh, it's possible. Um, and um, if it does, then it would be a huge... Uh, discovery that will affect humanity. And, you know, I, in my book, Extraterrestrial, I talk about Oumuamua's wager in the sense that, you know, if it turns out to be an artificial object, the implications would be huge. And therefore, we cannot discount them. We have to look into that. Awesome. All right. Dr. Avi Loeb, I appreciate you so much. I know we had some technical difficulties, so we have to cut this a little bit short, but I appreciate you so much for coming on and taking a few minutes with me. Thank you so much. I had a great time. All right, Professor. Thanks so much.